In this episode, I talk with Steven Snyder, meditation teacher and author who's perhaps best known for having completed the virtuoso level shamatha meditation path of Paok Seidor. In this interview, we learn about Stephen's early fascination with meditation, teaching himself Zen practice from books for years before attending his first traditional retreat, and discuss in some depth how his vivid experiences of past life memories have influenced his path. We discuss Stephen's radical awakening experience at age 28, and how he developed unique processes to integrate that awakening and improve his behaviors. We also discuss how Stephen's professional role as a lawyer to various Zen masters revealed to him the importance of combining psychological work with spiritual practice. In 2018, Stephen had a serious stroke, during which he was thrust into a profound experience of what he calls the Vajra body. And so in the last part of this interview, Stephen recounts that incident and details the realizations that followed. So without further ado, Stephen Snyder. So Stephen, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for inviting me, Steve. Really nice to meet you. So. I'm curious, how did you first become interested in meditation? Well, um, that's a good question. I think that um, even as a child, I used to um, go out and lie on this expansive lawn that we had and look up at the sky. And um, you probably know there's a Tibetan meditation, Tibetan Buddhist meditation called sky gazing. And so I would do this sometimes for hours. And, uh, and part of my ritual would be to imagine what would happen if gravity turned off. What would it be like to just float through space and the different, I had the idea there was a layer that was blue, then a layer that was black. I didn't know about the no oxygen thing. So I thought I could breathe while I was floating. So I think I started there in some ways and also with a deep appreciation of nature as a child. And um, formal meditation came later. I mean, my teen years, I used to do a lot of camping and would do a lot of fire watching, which the uh, American Indians here have as a spiritual practice as well. Uh, but it came to formal meditation at, at age 19 in 1976. And that was really just going through the usual teenage struggles that one goes through. And I felt like I wanted to do something uh, I wanted to check in somehow internally, uh, in, inwardly, and went to the library and found a few books on meditation. And the Buddhist meditations really spoke to me. And so I began trying the different ones and started off in the in the Zen tradition. Was the fire watching meditation you were doing, was it like the sky gazing, something you just naturally started doing? Or was that some, somehow part of a Native American context? It was just something I started doing. I think it's common for people when they go camping to do that. But I found that I would really seek that out on camping trips or when there was fire in you know, fireplaces and things. I would specifically go and sit and try not to interact with people and just stare at the fire. There was something I could feel inside that almost like a rhythm that I got in with the fire that I could feel. And I felt more calm, too, which I appreciated. So you started with Zen meditation from books, I presume. I did. There weren't that many books in 1976. There were a, a very small amount. Um, and so there was one called something like the, the Fragrant Lotus. And it had uh, samples of, I don't know, maybe 15 or 20 different Buddhist meditations. And I tried each one over the course of a couple of days and found that the Zen one in particular, the sitting quietly, the, um, 
Soto Zen, Shikantaza really felt like the right fit for me. Even though it was very difficult, I couldn't sit still. I still felt a, a resonance and a grounding in doing that meditation. What did your practice look like at that time? Did you have some sort of a regular practice schedule or was it more the sort of thing where you were exploring it on an ad hoc basis? That's a good question. I, I really started, um, when I got the book, I really started just trying the meditation. Initially, I would sit up in my bed and I decided I really wanted to do something that was more meditation-like. And I secured myself a, a Zafu, a sitting cushion, and began sitting. And I could only sit for five minutes at a time before I felt like I was going to jump out of my skin. I was so restless. And so I'd sit for five minutes in the morning and five minutes at night. And, and I just took to it right away. I really felt like it was good for me and felt good. And so I haven't missed a day that I can recall since then. So I started and continued. That's remarkable. Have you any sense of why you were drawn to that sort of thing? Because of course, lots of people report when they're children, meditation-like experiences, but not so many engage in some sort of a regular meditation practice that continues on throughout their life. So do you have any sense of what it was about you that drew you to it in, in such a, a more serious way? Mm -hmm. Well, I had an experience when I was three. Uh, growing up on Guam, my father worked for the airlines. He was in sales. And we traveled a lot in Asia every year. And we go to Japan almost every year, at least once. And on one of the trips when I was three, which was in 1960, I remember walking in the streets in Tokyo. And in those days, people were wearing kimonos and they were wearing the wooden shoes, at least the women, a lot of the women were. And I remember seeing some uh, Zen monks in their black robes and shaved heads, uh, literally sprinting down the sidewalk. They were probably on their way to something and were late. And I remember seeing just that that really striking appearance of the, the shaved head, shaved face, and these long flowing black robes that were just fluttering behind them. And my experience at that age was a kind of recognition. I, I saw them and I felt there I am in some way. It was like I recognized something. And I think that stayed with me. And when I read the Zen material and saw pictures of the monks, then I realized that's what I had seen. And that was, and that feeling sort of arose again. So there's something about returning almost a kind of uh, coming back rather than starting new, even though I did start new, I didn't, uh, you know, I had to really learn how to meditate and my body had to get used to it and all that. That's interesting. The idea of not starting from scratch, but of returning. It might explain some of the things that happened to you in terms of being a little ahead of the curve, you might say, in your practice. Would you attribute that recognition, as some do, to a sort of past life? Or was it more the impressionability of youth? Mm -hmm. A good question. Uh, I think from where I sit now, I would say that it probably was revealing past lives. Um, I've had some contact with that over the years on retreats. And uh, I have had some memories of um, some lifetimes as a Zen monk. So I think there was some kind of a stirring of that. Uh, at, of course, at three years old, I had no idea about any of this. But, uh, and, and really only in the late, later years have I looked back and reflected on it a little more. But, uh -huh. but I think, yeah, I think that was probably what was happening. Fabulous. Could you tell us a bit about those past life memories or contacts? Because no doubt um, listeners will be aware. It's said that when one uh, 
it gets into certain deep states of concentration and one can cast one's mind back and try to remember before you were born and it's, it's a technique that actually exists in, in meditation traditions to contact past lives. It does require, I think, quite a high level of concentration, which, as we'll come to it also, you've achieved. Is there something you could say about those past life experiences? Well, you're quite right. Um, in the Theravadan Buddhist tradition, there are practices one can do where one does trace back lifetimes. And um, uh, my teacher, the Paul Seidau, part of his requirement, um, I, I didn't do the part of the formal practice of him, a past life recall, but you're expected to do it to the level where you know the person's name, where they were born, their families, uh, names, favorite foods, all these different things you've got to come up with. So it's very, you're right, it's very specific. I, I didn't do it in that way. Uh, mine, uh, my memories or the past life recalls have come up on the longer concentration retreats and they came up spontaneously. I wasn't looking for anything. Uh, and what was interesting was they came up in relation to where I was in the practice. So if I was doing a particular practice in the Samatha portion of the Buddhist path on the retreat, that, and maybe I was having a little bit of difficulty or challenge with it, like a past life recall came up where I really, I really had this memory of being this other person doing that practice. And it was almost as though I could tap into their consciousness uh, regarding that practice to see, oh yeah, you turn right here and you turn left here and you pause by the big tree or whatever it is. But there was just a way I, I, I knew the practice, not in this lifetime, but it was like I had a, uh, a memory of it in a way that I was coming back again. So the coming back to me has been a big part of my practice in, in doing the various um, spiritual practices I've undertaken. Did that knowing come as a inner visual, inner, inner auditory experience? For instance, when I think back at what I had for breakfast this morning, I can see it in my mind. I can hear the crunching of the toast. <laughs> if I think back, you know, if I deliberately think back to the part of my life that was this morning, or was it coming as a sort of a dream-like reverie? How did the past life knowings uh, appear? Well, they appeared visual in, in that I... It was like I was seeing with those eyes, the eyes of the uh, prior lifetime, and, and I was aware of what they were aware of. And, and for example, um, one of the past lives related to doing the uh, Brahma Viharas, the, the metta practice, as I recall. And I was doing the practice, and I had this, and, and the memories come in a way where they're really uh, particular in that there's almost a kind of a hue, a feel, almost like this warm energy is part of it. And I remembered um, or had a, uh, I won't say a memory exactly, but an experience of remembering this young girl. And she was actually a Quaker and sitting in one of the Quaker meetings. And I could feel her love for God so strongly in my heart that it just, I mean, she was so, and she was young. She was seven years old, maybe. And I could feel it so much that she just really transcended herself. She dropped the markers of self and had this really intimate relationship, this love of God relationship. But it, it sort of opened the door for me then to make that kind of connection in the metta practice and to have 
the um, experience of the other person's goodness uh, become uh, an object that that arose and led to deeper concentration states. It's fascinating. In your teaching experience, how common is that sort of an experience in people who are meditating? Uh, I would say it's uncommon. It does happen on occasion. Uh, where I really see it is, say we're, say we're on retreat and you come in and you start describing a, pr- a meditation practice that y- that's not in writing or it's not taught publicly, uh, but you know particulars about it that you could only know from doing it. That's happened, oh, I don't know, maybe a dozen times over the years where someone's come in and known it and asked about some practice that uh, that isn't being taught. It's available if you look hard for it, but it's not common. It's not in the, the readily accessible books. So it's not something they would have stumbled upon in their reading, in other words. That sort of uh, contact with past lives, I suppose, would be under the category of cities or powers that one obtains through meditative accomplishment. And that's a feature of certainly the Vasudhimaga style concentration path, among other paths. Have you ex- had experience while we're on the topic, and then we will return to your life, which I know we're at the moment only at 16 years old. <laughs> Have you had any experience of other sorts of cities, either uh, yourself or as a teacher with your students in retreat? Well, I think there there are people who come to a meditation practice, come to the spiritual life, and they have aspects of, say, their their awareness that are more developed in other areas. And so sometimes people will have, uh, again, abilities either with meditation. Uh, I've seen this where people come to the practice, and the concentration practice, for example, have no exposure to it. They're at a beginner's day long or a weekend or what have you, and they just take to it and it, it happens in a way or, or sometimes people can have uh, a spontaneous jhana experience or absorption experience. And, and those spontaneous ones, well, first I'll say they're all spontaneous in that respect, but this is someone who's again on a day long and they're meditating, but it, it just somehow happens where they, they quickly have this experience where they go through the various stages and John arises for a split second and then they're back, but they've, they have, it's happened. And so um, that's happened not a lot, but I'd say a half dozen or a dozen times with people. And, and some people are just more naturally inclined to different practices. They resonate for whatever reason. We could say maybe it's past life. Maybe it's just their, uh, their, awareness, their consciousness now, it's hard to say, but, but it, it absolutely is true. People do gravitate and they feel a resonance or they, or they know they get it in some way. So that, that definitely happens. And, and I think also in the deeper, again, the, the longer, deeper concentration retreats, people can have various qualities arise or develop in a way that they didn't have before. And uh, a common one, that I've heard from students after a retreat when they're going home is they might stop at a store, a gas station to um, you know take care of their business and to find that there's a way where they they know the thoughts of the cashier or they can feel something within the cashier in themselves. So I think some of that is the barriers between us that we 
assume are there and are very fixed become very soft and permeable. And then we can feel, we can be aware of a lot more than we normally are. Yeah, that's, that's fascinating and, and re- remarkably common, I think. That might be the most common one, which, which is really quite radical, isn't it? It is. It is. But it, but it shows if that separation is, is softened or permeable, there is a way we're actually in contact with reality, which is ultimate reality is we are one. We are unified and we just appear as two, even though we're really the same. Before we uh, go then back to your biography, you mentioned that people seem to have certain proclivities for whatever reason. Uh, their personality makeup, you know, past lives, could even be genetics, I suppose, or some sort of brain structure thing. How do you as a teacher assess whether a student is just encountering difficulties that are associated with any kind of meditation practice that one faces from time to time, or where one is doing one is engaged in a practice that is unsuited to them at that point and perhaps redirect them to a different style of practice? Yeah, the, well, well the, the traditional answer and the way that um, Paul Xaidao answered that question is he would start everyone with mindfulness of breathing, Anapanasati. And there were some people after, I don't know, say a week or two that really weren't progressing, me- meaning they couldn't stay with the breath more than just um, a very short time, a, you know, a few few moments, and then would would lose the contact. That he might move them over to other practices and start and see if they could pick pick up there and get some traction. And some of the people could, so it made sense to move them. Uh, here, uh, teaching in the West, there's only been a few students who I felt like it wasn't suitable for them to do. A few, a couple of them were people who they really needed to do some therapy before they came to meditation. They just had had such difficult, uh, painful, uh, profoundly traumatic early lives in a way that that was getting in the way of them. They they, they weren't willing to kind of turn in because that was there. Uh, but for most people, if they feel the heart pull to a meditation or to a practice or to a retreat, usually it's suitable. And one of the interesting things is that some of the people who have been the most natural at doing the concentration practice have come to the early retreats, meaning the shorter retreats, uh, really out of happenstance, meaning they didn't look, they didn't look uh, uh, me up or, you know, I've, I've taught with uh, Tina Rasmussen or Tina up or our retreat, sometimes they just simply have had, I had this week of vacation, I need to figure out how I can do something. And they look all over their region of the US and find this retreat, which the timing works. So we've had a number of people who are really good at the meditation come to us in that way. So it's kind of interesting that we somehow, you know, cause and effect works that the right people show up at the right place. So back to your biography, we left you at uh, 14, 15, 16, reading books about meditation and settling on a particular kind of Zen meditation, Shikantazen, or just sitting. What happened next? Well, I continued with my daily practice for several years, and I was very interested in doing retreats, but I really uh, thought that I wasn't of a caliber to do retreats yet. I had read some of the Zen stories, particularly the awakening stories, about people, you know, walking in the door and the 
the master, you know, hits them on the shoulder and they wake up. And I thought this was the kind of interaction I was going to face when I came to a, a Zen temple. And I knew I wasn't prepared to do that. I was, you know, fairly shy about my practice at that point. But um, after a couple of years, I'd say maybe three years, I did do my first week-long retreat. So, um, so that did start, and that's when the retreat started. Uh, was probably two or three years in, so somewhere around there. And what was that first retreat experience like? It was hard. Uh, I, I'd been used to sitting at home, and at home, um, most people will fidget to a certain extent and maybe even change uh, leg position or this kind of business. And I was in the habit of doing that. I was trying to learn how to sit full lotus, so and I was able to sit half lotus. So I would shift my legs periodically to try to get both legs accustomed to the posture. And on the retreat, uh, this was a pretty the Zen world was pretty strict in those days, and you weren't you weren't you were strongly encouraged not to move or change position during the sittings. So it was really difficult in that regard. But I did learn that I could sit through, um, you know, the body pain that can happen when you're when you're meditating for long periods of time. So I did learn I had the capacity to do that. Perhaps you could talk a bit about the mechanics then of learning to sit through the body pain, which is not common to all meditation approaches, actually, but certainly is a feature of Zen, especially the more traditional forms. Yeah. There, now, I want to make a distinction between the kind of pain where you're actually harming your body and the kind of pain that is mostly personality driven and is re rebelling against what you're doing. So uh, when it's actual real pain, when you're when you have, um, you know, you have an injury, for example, you as a young person, you tore up your knee and had surgery. Well, sitting for you is going to be different than the average person who hasn't had that. And if you have pain in that knee, then you need to be sensitive to that because you have a medical issue. And what I'm talking about more is the personality patterning where there's a question of who's running the show and the personality starts getting bored meditating because not enough's happening. And also we're turning in, and I think on some level, our personality knows there's a point where the personality doesn't get to go. It, it has to stop, and, it, and it, it isn't available in some of the deeper meditations. So it starts rebelling, and that's part of the pain I'm talking about, is the anxiousness, the uh, just the real desire to do something different or move or yell or whatever it is. And that's more what I'm saying, that I learned to sit with that and to be with it and to realize that it was just transitory. Because once I stayed with it or faced it and said, you know, kind of give me your best, then it would usually settle and dissipate. And I was able to sit in a deeper way. So you went on your first retreat there two or three years into practice and continued sitting throughout your 20s until the age of 28. You had an awakening experience. Can you say a little bit about 
that moment and what changed? Well, um, if you don't mind, I'll, I'll kind of give you the, the lead up to that and then we can explore it. Um, I was reading a book uh, in the Zen tradition. There's a um, perspective of history where it's believed that there were uh, Zen patriarchs following the Buddha. So it was kind of lead teachers that held the Dharma or were Dharma holders. And there's a sequence of them from India into China and then into Japan and into Zen. And I was reading a, a book about the life of one of them, the sixth patriarch in China, who was one of the more famous of the patriarchs. And I was reading this particular book and reading about how he had an awakening. He was illiterate, so he was not able to read. And he was uh, passing by a monk in the street who was chanting the a sutra called the Diamond Sutra. And there was a line in the Diamond Sutra that says, produce the thought that is nowhere supported. And when I read that, I felt like something got lodged or wedged almost in my throat, that it was something that I say now I couldn't spit out and I couldn't digest. It was wedged. And, and so this question or this statement, produce the thought that is nowhere supported, stayed with me 24 hours a day. I mean, perhaps not in my sleep, but in my waking hours, at least, it was just constantly present, I mean, reasserting itself. And so I ended up taking it up, um, what I understand now, to be kind of a koan. And I stayed with the question, and it, and it came down to um, producing the thought, how is, and, my, and so part of the journey was, how is thought produced? And I ended up doing a more classic meditation. I started with the senses, you know, the sight, sound, touch, you know, or hearing, touch, that kind of thing. And I traced back each sense to what I considered to be its source, which was kind of a base consciousness. And there was a way somehow where I had this instinct to put a kind of... Um, <laughs> kind of post it at, at the source of each sense. And I did all the senses. And when I did the final sense and got to where all the post-its were, when I put the final one up, that's when there was just sort of this explosion, this, you know, uh, big event that I could see that both I was nothing, uh, meaning I was empty of any abiding self or any enduring personality. So there was really nothing there. And uh, sort of a, a moment later, it it opened up, it kind of exploded into that not only was I nothing, I was empty. Uh, the emptiness was full. It was full of love. So there was really a kind of emptiness unity experience uh, kind of imploded or exploded together. And that was the experience. And that really changed me in a way that I felt, uh, you know, in my in my my simple vernacular of those days, I, I said to a friend of mine, the house has shifted off the foundation. And that was how it felt like the house had literally moved off, that it was no longer sitting uh, squarely on the foundation. Something had changed dramatically. And how did you notice that change as you proceeded on from that experience? I think there were just ways that I saw I didn't get triggered as I normally did. Some of the patterning um, was resolved. And I won't say all of it because there still was a lot of years of work of personality recognition and digestion that needed to happen. And, and also 
watching my behavior, seeing where my behavior didn't accord with my understanding. And, and remember also, this was, uh, I'm not even sure the year right now, but probably, um, Oh, it would have been in the probably eighty. Let's see, it would have been like eighty-five or so, eighty-six somewhere in there. There, there still weren't that many teachers here, and uh, at that point, I wasn't even working with a teacher. I was still practicing mostly on my own. Occasionally going to retreat. The retreats were far away, and um, and I also decided for whatever reason that um, that. I couldn't take it as an identity, that it was really important that I not consume it in a way that was mine. So I kept it as sort of this, this experience that I didn't understand fully, uh, but I, I felt like in time it would be revealed. And I was more interested in what was my behavior rather than what was my uh, state of awareness. So that's what I began watching, my behavior. And at that point, I was married and had two young kids. And so each evening, I would make a have a notebook, and I'd write down every experience of the day that I felt was um, not congruent with who I felt like I was internally. And then I would be with those each experience and try to trace back what was the source. And my question was, who who, who did that? And a lot of times I'd find my parents or a grandparent or someone. And so I had taken on a piece of behavior of theirs. But it let me begin to let go of those things, to recognize, well, that's not how I actually feel like I want to behave. So I could start changing the habit patterns and the habit behaviors. And that went on for years. Uh, can you think of an example of a behavior that you, you noticed, wrote in your book and, and traced back like that? Right. Um, there was one in particular. I remember having dinner with my kids one night. Uh, they were fairly, fairly young, maybe, I don't know, five and seven or something like this. And as kids do, they got, you know, interacting and got a little rambunctious. And one of them knocked over this glass of milk they had. And the milk went all over the table and was dripping through the table onto the floor. And I mean, just made a gigantic mess. And I really reacted out of upset and some anger about it. You know, be more careful, pay more attention, something like that. And and um, I did it with enough forcefulness that, of course, one or both of them began to cry. And it was, you know, a production. And so that night, that was one of the things I looked at was, you know, what happened there? Who who was doing that? Because I didn't feel like, I didn't feel congruent with how I behaved. And that was when I was able to trace back. And one of my parents had a real trigger for spilling milk. They had grown up after, after the depression. And so money was tight, food was, was scarcer. And so they would really overreact, in my opinion, when that kind of thing happened. And I just took it on. I didn't have a a basis for it or rationale or anything. But that was one that I was able to be with. So when it happened again, I saw that I didn't react in the same way. I just, you know, sort of cleaned it up and said, you know, accidents happen and, you know, let's let's pay attention while we're eating kind of thing. But I didn't react in any kind of anger or outburst. Was the tracing the behavior back to that imprint sufficient to unravel its activation in the next instance of spilt milk? Or was other... Uh, procedure or work required? There was one more step to the my process in the, you know, in reviewing my day. And that would be when I would go through and establish where it came from. Uh, part of the feeling, as I mentioned, was it didn't feel congruent. 
And then what I would do is I would replay the incident and I would behave in a way that I felt was congruent with my internal state. And so it was almost like I was reprogramming to be, to be more congruent in my behavior. And this was a strategy you came up with yourself? I did. This is a theme that you often talk about, uh, both in your writing and also in your public teaching, which is the need for psychological dimension, the personality material and so on. And I'm wondering, it seems that your the awakening experience that you had at 28 loosened a certain hold on that structure so that it was easier to improve. Now, that might, that might be wrong, but that seems to be what you're implying. Is that true or not, uh, in your opinion? Uh, but also, do you think there are any psychological needs, in addition to the regular psychological development of a human being, that are especially common or perhaps even unique among people who've had such an awakening experience, such as yourself? Well, um, I, I think that it's possible to work on your own on the more surface issues of the personality and the behaviors. I think there are some that are more deeply entrenched that it's helpful to work with a teacher, someone who can be observing objectively and helping to guide your being with those uh, memories, events, behaviors. And, and also, I think some of them take time for a kind of maturity to where we can see into it. And, and of course, what's happening as we're loosening the grip of these behaviors and this uh, and the personality patterning is that we're getting more and more freedom. We're getting looser, we're getting more open, and we're getting less identified. That's all part of that process. So we can go in and be more objective and be more neutral about it and less defensive and reactive about it. So that helps. But but some of the deeper ones, I think the the particularly the early early childhood experiences uh, and the traumas really require some assistance to work with. Some of it is because we don't have sophistication of language at that age. And mm -hmm. so we don't, it's kind of like we hold it with the mind of a two-year-old or three-year-old, for example, and we don't have a fully developed um, understanding that we can rely upon. So that's where it takes some, some help. And, and I found with the concentration meditation, both the, um, the mindfulness of breathing on Anapanasati and also the Brahma Viharas, the, the heart meditations of Buddhism, that both of those, when you engage them, they stir up whatever our resistances are, whatever our psychological states that can be blocks or can be limits on uh, accessing those territories. So there is a natural way that these things get kicked up if we're paying attention. And do you think that people who have had an awakening experience such as yourself, does it produce a situation in which a certain type of psychological work is required? In other words, are people who have had an awakening experience like yourself more or less prone to certain kinds of psychological instability? Let's put it that way. If someone comes in and, and in sort of Zen language, if, if their vessel, if their container has deep enough cracks then they're going to need some help repairing those cracks. For a lot of people, a lot of people don't have really deep cracks. If you had a pretty okay childhood, not even great, but if it wasn't really traumatic or really bad, then you know, certainly people have been wounded by their lives, but they're not cracked in a way that they really need, like for example, trauma therapy. That's not a, a common referral 
I would make as a Buddhist teacher, but there would be occasionally people who just really had, uh, you know, horrific childhoods, and 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 it's beyond the scope of what we can do spiritually. They really need someone to help them repair that vessel, because you need it re a really clean, established vessel to really hold the experience, particularly the awakening experience and the realization experiences. So I'm curious, as you're shedding, working through these imprints that you you described as sort of where does that come from and it, it turned out it came from someone else and was sort of playing out through your behavior when you start to share those imprints i'm curious what's left in terms of your personality how much of your personality is is not simply the constellation of imprints that have that have occurred to you uh, in your experience and 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 following from that what then animates behavior if not the imprints that have informed your personality? Mm -hmm. Great question. I, I think part of what happens is that um, we loosen, we drop some of the, uh, again, the, the structured patterns we've taken on, and there's a lot more freedom. And, and part of, it's an interesting process because as we work on those things, it's as though we can feel a sense of expansion, of uh, internal expansion or openness, spaciousness, those kinds of qualities. And part of that opens us up to receive uh, deeper spiritual meditative experiences because we have more capacity for them. And so it's this sort of hand in glove process where, uh, you know, you're probably aware of this, but the common phenomenon, people will go on retreat or have big experiences, awakening or otherwise, and they'll be at a very expanded uh, experience or expanded quality. And at some point when they're expanded enough, what's re what remains of the personality gets afraid because it's like, wait a minute, I'm not in control here. I don't know where we are. I'm not running things. This is bad. And so it, it does everything it can to collapse us back into the personality. And when we collapse, we're very tight after these big experiences. And people always feel like, or often feel like, oh, I've lost the experience. I'm, you know, it's it was transitory. I'm back and I'm in this awful place. And really it's just the accordion of spiritual practice. You've had a big experience, so of course it's gonna be followed by the contraction. And when you stay with the contraction, that's when it kicks up the items, the places, the memories that aren't congruent with the expansion. And that's where we begin to see, okay, this needs to be worked or needs to be digested in psychological language such that we can then go back to our meditation at home or on retreat and we can then open to perhaps a new expanded level. So, so that's part of what happens. And, and this, the experiences that happen in the expanded states we feel an aliveness that um, is more objective. So we can say it's who we are, but it's not personal. It's objective and universal. And so that begins to animate. And where you know you could you could have a room full of people who all have had significant awakening experiences, and all of them would be different. They'd be very unique in terms of how they behaved and their proclivities and their approach and all this. So it isn't like we use we lose any uniqueness. In fact, we find, we discover what is unique about us, but what's not conditioned by our past, what's fresh, and we have our way of being. And we have, a, in effect, we have a flavor. And that's one of the things that, that in my experience, 
we don't lose ever is there's always a kind of flavor of who you are at your most core. When you say that, say you had a room full of people who had profound awakening experience, such as you're describing, they'd all be very different. Uh, their flavors would be unique. Do they have something in common? Is there a quality among people who've had that sort of experience, a sort of like recognizing like? Are you able to spot somebody who's had such an experience? And if so, what is it that you notice? Uh, it's certainly possible, and I have had the experience. I, I wouldn't say that it's um, would happen 100% of the time, but it, it does happen where there can be a recognition either visually, so eye to eye, we see each other and there's a knowing that's in the field. That can happen, I've had that experience. And the other is there's just a felt sense in the field of that you, you recognize someone, but you're not recognizing them based on their individual individuality. You're, you're recognizing them based upon really the, the quality of their field. They, they have an awakeness in their field. You can feel the, the universal qualities, the objective universal qualities in the field. So to me, that's a lot of my perception comes from feeling the field while I'm with people. And, and I know what my field feels like. So I can, I can detect, not always, but some of the time, um, what's what they're contributing to the field. And that informs me, uh, like working with students, that's part of what I'm watching when I'm in interview or taking questions, is what's, what's the quality of the field between us. One of the things that I've heard uh, people say who have big experiences, awakening experiences of some sort, people feel often say that they can feel this sort of a field. They can feel, if you want, the unspoken impact of, of the person's quality of the person's field in the other direction. I'm curious, after having your awakening experience, when you would be around people who were, if you want, not that awake, not that aware, did you find friction uh, being in the company of those sorts of people? A difficulty being with people who are you know, shut down and suffering in this sort of self-referential loops. Is that something that you noticed? I'd say early on after the awakening, that was more true. I, I really hungered to be around like-minded people. And mostly I wasn't. This was also, this is around the time I started um, practicing law. So I was a young lawyer, you know, in the trenches with other lawyers. So I was definitely around a lot of people because um, we can probably agree pretty easily that the legal field is not one that really values much in the way of self-awareness or any kind of spiritual awakening. So it's very much in the intellectual and in the, the rules and all that. So, so there was that hunger uh, early on. I, and, and I do want to say, too, in terms of awakening and realization, there is really no end to awakenings or realizations that are possible that what we could call the mystery, which is what we experience in, in awakening experience in meditation is, is endless, it's boundless. There's no, there's no way we're ever gonna reach the end or have every experience that's possible. And also the, the experience of all religions and all spiritual practices is there and emanates from there. So it isn't as though Buddhism is better or has better experiences. All of them are embedded in all the religions it's just some religions focus more on, you know, one, Christianity is more about union with God or Jesus. 
than it is about emptiness, for example. So there's different orientations in that way. But I think in time, like where I am now in life, um, I live in a place that is, you know, there are people are actively, most people are actively Christian here. That's predominantly true. Um, but meeting people, I, I don't have the hunger where I have to have that experience uh, because I feel everyone as a part of the undivided whole, the unity. And I'm curious how the mystery shows up as this particular person. What do they like? How do they operate? Even if they're not aware of it, it's it's a curiosity uh, and of interest to me. So so I feel less that way. There's I think there's a point when there's an inner stability that happens when you don't necessarily need as many people who are like-minded around in order to maintain or to be with your, you know, your quality or your inner experience. And how do you feel when you're around people who are in pain or suffering, or a proportion of that pain and suffering is not coming from the circumstance particularly, but towards maybe their relationship to the circumstance? I, I get your question, what you're asking. You're asking, what, what's it like to be experiencing other people who are struggling and are um, feeling feeling pain that mostly is self-imposed. Um, well, I say there's a couple couple responses. One is as part of the Brahma Viharas, the heart practices of Buddhism, compassion, karuna is one of the practices that one develops. And and compassion is really, in my opinion, a misunderstood practice and quality. A lot of people, particularly in the Buddhist world, think compassion means to take away the pain of another so they are pain-free. And my perspective is not that. My perspective is compassion is offering support so we can be with the pain. Because the pain is there, there's a learning, there's an opportunity. And not that we need to seek out pain, there's enough naturally arising pain in our lives. But when it, when it arises, usually or often it's there for a reason. There's It's a, it's a thread we can pick up and follow. So, so that's part of what I feel is the compassion on, to offer them support for where they are without making it better. And because it's not really my job to make it better in that regard. And then there's also the quality, the Brahma Vihara of equanimity, Upeka. And that is understanding that we're each heir to our own karma. So one is experiencing their own karma and having those experiences. And if you reflect on your life, as I do mine, some of the most important life lessons I've learned are the ones where I've run headfirst into a brick wall and done it again and again. And if someone had been there to stop me, to catch me, to put a helmet on, then uh, I wouldn't have had the experience. I wouldn't have stopped the behavior. The pain wouldn't have been so much that I had to do something else. And so that's part of it is being a, an adult, a spiritual adult and letting other people be adults too. Can you think of an example of a sort of brick wall behavior that you ran into again and again and again that eventually penetrated? I mean, a personal example. Yeah, I, I, I'd come up with an example. I think when I was married to my first wife, that we had sort of rounds of arguments, you know, as couples will do. There are certain things that trigger the couple and and you say this and I say this and that's our pattern. And and I think there was a way with that relationship and and the disagreements we had uh, that we'd have the same kind of argument again and again. And I kept seeing it and I couldn't not do it. I, I just would get, I'd get snagged so often. And, 
And finally, I remember one time being really aware in the argument and not wanting to do it and not feeling like it was congruent, but I couldn't stop. But I reached a level where it was just like, I'm done with this. I'm, you know, I'm just fed up with this pattern. And I think once I hit that point where it was just the suffering was so strong that I just had to change, I had to do something different. And I began trying different things when the triggering interaction would happen. What if I just stay silent? What if I don't respond, uh, you know, or what, whatever I tried? But that was an example of, of seeing the same pain again and again, and then, and then finally just being fed up with it, not being able to stand it. I think one of the um, judgment calls that one faces in a situation like that, for instance, a, let's say a recurring interpersonal conflict, is should one stay in the situation and learn how to navigate it better? Or should one remove oneself from the situation? I think the same is true actually in a meditation posture. Should one sit through the difficulty or just simply change the position? There's a judgment call that, that can be made there. And I have certainly seen people, I think, stay in difficult situations, let's put it that way, in the name of spiritual or psychological purification. And that can work very beautifully, as, as in your example. Uh, but I've also seen people battered and diminished by a situation like that. I'm not implying by any stretch that the, these arguments with your wife are at that kind of a level. It's just a concept now. How do you navigate that judgment call either with yourself or with your students who come to you with these sorts of questions? Yeah, that's an important question because I, I think to me, one of the first questions I'm going to ask is, is it a dangerous dynamic relationship? I mean, is somebody being harmed in a significant way, particularly physically or or uh, emotionally? Is it really, is somebody really, you know, there's the whole understanding about fair fighting that, that they talk about with couples. Is it so unfair that it, it really is um, profoundly unhealthy? Rather than is it is it a kind of argument that stays in a healthy territory? It doesn't get personal. There aren't personal attacks. Uh, there aren't dredging up. Well, remember last Tuesday when you did this? You know, it's not it's it's not that level. It's staying with this argument and this discussion. Then, then I think there can be something useful about it. And personally, I always need time to retreat from it and reflect upon it, and in a more neutral, open state of mind, really kind of explore and pick it apart. What's what's going on? And then if I have, you know, if it's a recurring thing, then, you know, I, I still work with teachers and I, I work with my teachers on that. Uh, maybe this is an issue to understand more my side of it and, and understanding that. And I've, I, I've done, you know, as a lot of Westerners have, I've, I, I've done therapy at various points in my life when I felt like it was helpful or necessary. So I'm, I'm not against that. And uh, now this is different working like with the European students there's a lot more stigma around therapy than there is here in the States. I mean, here in, in the U.S., it's almost a rite of passage for people to do therapy. Um, and there, I remember doing a retreat, one of the retreats in Italy, and somebody from Europe came in, and they'd had a really traumatic childhood. I mean, really horrific stuff had happened. And and I said to them, you know, it might make sense for you to find a therapist after the retreat and kind of process some of this. And they looked at me like I had slapped them in the face. They had this just horrified look. And I found out later from 
somebody else working there that was a translator who told me, oh, no, we, we don't do that unless you unless you're like schizophrenic or you know, you're bipolar. People don't go to therapists or psychologists. It's not common. So I had to kind of learn to temper that. Um, and interestingly, the, if the Italians would often go to their Catholic priest, the local priest, to work on various life issues, even if they didn't go to the Catholic Church, that was so, mm-hmm. so in, ingrained into the culture that that was typically who they went to rather than a therapist. Yeah, it's fascinating. You mentioned there that you were a lawyer, your professional life, and one of the motivations I've heard you say for becoming a lawyer was you looked around at Buddhist communities and saw that they needed legal counsel for various uh, things that organizations need to do, and you wanted to help provide that. And you've also said that in working with as clients, Zen masters and Zen groups and so on, you were privy to a lot of bad behavior in those sorts of situations that further reinforced your perspective that spiritual experience is not in itself enough, that the psychological aspect which you've been emphasizing has to play a role. I'm curious what sort of things you saw and what effect it had at that time. I mean, now you're able to articulate this point of view of the spiritual and the psychological coming together. Was that always something you had? Um, Was there uh, any kind of disillusionment that came when you got got a bit closer to the embodiments of the tradition in that sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I... I did um, I did a fair amount of work working with different um, Buddhist groups, some Zen groups. I worked with some that were spiritual groups, not Buddhist, helping them either set up a nonprofit or do various legal things. And part of what I saw, and I think is still true, is if they're having somebody who doesn't have a spiritual orientation, if they're working with a lawyer that doesn't have that, they look at it very mechanically, you know, legal. And, and a lot of times the spiritual groups, they're, they're oriented, they're positioned in certain ways. And I would try to capture that in their um, incorporation documents, particularly their bylaws, to really have it where it functioned in a way that was congruent with how they uh, functioned as a group. So that was part of what I felt I contributed. And what you're referring to is in doing that work, I would get called upon by different teachers Sometimes when they had personal things, they had divorces or one of their kids was arrested or there was a car accident or something like that. And and at the time, I still had a lot of idealization of teachers. I thought that once someone had an awakening experience, it just completely wiped out all of the bad psychological behavior, all of the, the negative stuff. And so that basically all their functioning, all their action was enlightened. And this was, you know, common understanding in those days. Teachers were very much put up on pedestals. Um, and I knew people who, like teachers I had, they told me they couldn't even look at the teacher. They just were so in awe of them. They couldn't make eye contact. So that was sort of the tone of the day. And and what I saw was with these teachers was that, sorry, uh, what I saw with these teachers was that they reacted pretty much how you'd see an ordinary citizen react to say their kid had an auto accident, people were injured, or they got arrested for a DUI, or they were going through a divorce. They, they, there might be a little higher level of behavior, but it wasn't always a lot higher. So that began challenging my idealization, both of the, the, the Zen world and also just of spirituality and awakening. I, it took a long time for me to realize that 
there, you know, there may be a model like with the Buddha where all of these things were eradicated in the enlightenment experience. But I don't think it's it's true virtually for anyone today. I think people that wake up, they're still they still have the people aspect to them uh, functioning. So there was a certain disillusionment that came with that for me. And also I got to where I realized I needed more. I needed uh, a hearty practice, but I also needed an inclusion of the personality, what was coming up for me, what I felt was incongruent. I needed a way to do both. And and that ended up leading me, interestingly, from the Zen world, uh, really back to the more of the origins of Buddhism in the Theravadan world. I really became curious about what the Buddha what the Buddha did, what he practiced. And I read a lot and heard a lot about what he said and what he gave his advice, but what did he do? That was my kind of my theme for uh, a number of years. Is that the uh, trajectory that led you to your retreat with Park Seodor, where you engaged in the very rigorous and hard jhana system that he teaches? It did. Before that, now, I don't know if, you, if you'd like to talk about this or not, I interviewed Tina, as you know, and she was telling us, of course, about her one-year retreat that she did in her apartment in Mill Valley. Right. She also talked about meeting you really rather soon after that. And she said that she, on that retreat, had had an awakening experience early in that year. And that meeting you, there was a, a mutual sort of recognition. And she said that you were able to show her the ropes, the post awakening ropes. I think she put it somewhat like that. Um, and she and she said also she she felt in a certain sense her freshness to the experience in, invigorated your perspective on the matter because that had happened when you were 28, which is quite a long time before you'd met Tina. What can you say about uh, meeting Tina, seeing as, seeing as we've interviewed her, and I think maybe listeners would be interested in, in the, the, the crossover there. What can you say about meeting Tina and, and that interaction? Well, I, I'd say uh, you characterized it well. I mean, both the meeting when she and I met, there was a kind of recognition immediately that we had not only was there a recognition of an awakeness with each of us, but there was also a recognition that we had um, we had I, I would say prior life relationship, and it was clear in that initial meeting that um, we had some business together. Um, I, I initially didn't know that we would end up dating or not, but I, I ended up writing her the evening, emailing her the evening we met and just saying, I really feel like I want to spend time with you. And I don't, I mean, I didn't really think about her personal life. So I didn't know if she was in a committed relationship or she was, you know, straight or gay or what, anything about her. And so I didn't presume there would be a romantic relationship. And, but I just knew I wanted to kind of hang out with her. And she ended up calling me and we talked and ended up establishing that we both were interested in dating and all that. So we did start a dating relationship. But but there absolutely was, you characterized it well, there was a way where I had, I don't know, maybe 15 years uh, experience being post-first post awakening, I'll say. And she was fresh right out of it. She was still glowing from the experience. 
So there was a way for me, it was really fun to be with somebody who was so new and fresh. And there was the sort of wide-eyed optimism. And, um, and, and part of it was, you know, she, part of what I communicated wasn't so pleasant in that this particular initial glow isn't going to stay. This is, you know, the experience and it lasts a while and it touches and changes your consciousness. But eventually, again, that sort of contraction business starts again. And whatever isn't congruent with the awakening is going to start asserting itself. And so that was bad news to her. She didn't like that very much. But it was the truth. And she found that to be. But but it was, you know, for both of us. And it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like I, I had a position where I was a leader or a teacher. It wasn't like that. We were very much peers. And there was a lot of mutual respect. And and we both appreciated where we came from. Um, so So there was a lot of respect in our relationship. Um, and still, we still respect each other. And uh, you know, feel that way. So um, there's that. But it was interesting. I mean, it was pretty fun to do. And we had a lot of a lot of interesting experiences. We had after the retreat, the side out, which was a two month retreat, we both did. And we both finished the Samatha path, which was an enormous amount of meditative work to do in two months. I mean, I'm I'm not sure how that all happened, but it did. Um, we tried to make sense of it together and integrate it and figure out how it fit on the map. And and also, like a lot of uh, Western Buddhists, we're, we're not confined to one tradition. A lot of Buddhist teachers have had experiences maybe in Theravadan, in Zen, maybe Tibetan Buddhism, maybe all, maybe other traditions. So a lot of people are more of a hodgepodge. And we were both that. We had both had our feet in different practices. So kind of trying to figure out how does it make sense with all these other practices that was part of the journey we were on for a couple of years after the retreat. Yeah, that's nice. Let's talk about that then, your retreat with Paok Seador. As you said, the both of you completed the jhana path. And from what I understand, were among a very few to have ever done that with him, and certainly the first lay Westerners, non-monastics, to have done that. And that path is extremely comprehensive. One has to go through... Uh, all eight jhanas, be able to enter them and exit them at will, go into a jhana and come out at a certain time in the future, purely from having set the intention on the way in, uh, for sometimes sitting for for two, three, four hours in order in order to you know, demonstrate the mastery of the jhana. That's the eight jhanas, then the ten kasinas, and, and all the other sorts of meditations that come, the different body part meditations, the element meditations, and so on. And the standards for Paok Sayadaw signing off on it, he's notoriously strict and rigorous. Can you say a bit about that retreat, uh, what the experience was like, and were you aware going in that that was a possibility on the cards for you? Um, I, no, I don't think I was aware. I, I, I had kind of an interesting experience signing up for the retreat in that a close friend of mine who actually introduced Tina and I um, was one of the retreat managers who organized it. This was the first retreat the Saidao did in the U.S. And he told me he was going to be inviting me. And I just started this legal job at a law firm. And I said, there's no way I can take time off, let alone two months. I mean, this is a career suicide kind of thing. And yet when I got his email, I literally watched myself hit reply and type in, I'm coming for two months. And I sent the email. And it was really an, uh, an experience of, I, I literally was like, who's writing this? There's no way I can go. But the retreat was maybe eight months later or maybe a year even later. And by the time that it came around, my circumstance had changed dramatically. I was self-employed. I was able, I had established a bunch of... Uh, 
uh, you know, work, work stuff such that I really could do the retreat. And I did. So I, I went with that and, and I had no prior exposure to this practice at all. Uh, again, there was almost nothing in English. The Sidow had a book you could get online called Knowing and Seeing that you could print at home. It was about 300 pages and it wasn't that well organized, meaning people could ask questions about anything at various sections. You could read about, say, First John, but there might be questions about the eighth John in there or, or skeleton meditation or something else. So it was really challenging to read. Uh, and ahead of time. So going on the, and going on the retreat, I originally volunteered to help in the kitchen. I thought, well, I'll meditate each day, but I'm not sure I'm going to do all this jhana stuff, but I'll really enjoy the retreat, but I'm going to help the cook. I, I had worked in restaurants when I was younger and done some cooking in the Zen world. And so I did. I started that. And um, probably the f- first or second day, I had my first interview with the Sayadaw, and he said to me, how long are you staying with the breath? And I said, I don't know, maybe 20 or 30 minutes, something like that. And he said, without interruption? I said, yeah, I'm just staying with it. And and I thought that was, you know, pretty standard. I didn't think it was anything special. And he he found out that I was working in the kitchen. He said, you're not working in the kitchen anymore. You're meditating full time. And so that's kind of where it started. And, and I feel actually one of the strongest um, prior experiences or practices I had was in the Zen world. I did some of the koan practice, you know, working with koans. And there's a way, like I talked about that, the awakening experience where I was, that uh, sentence lodged in me, produced the thought that is nowhere supported. The koan's like that. You're you're holding a particular quality, what they call the turning point of the koan. You're holding that as much as you can 24-7. So I had that, that prior experience of holding a meditative object close all the time. So when I started with that, it was simply doing it with the breath. I just stayed with the breath all the time. So I think that helped me a lot in terms of the practice. And I think uh, for both Tina and I, what really was a big help was that we both had had the awakening experiences prior. So we didn't have as much allegiance to the personality. And also we didn't have as much fear of transcendent states as some people do. So I think that helped us a lot in terms of the practice developing. And also, Tina and I were in, uh, you know, slightly against the rules, but we were passing a few notes. We we were married at that point. She she ordained as a nun, as you probably know. I was planning to ordain, but there weren't enough monks. She had to have some number ten or something to do it, and there weren't the number, uh, so that was fine. But anyway, so and I knew that she was progressing on the path. So there was a way where I, I knew someone was doing it, which meant it was yeah. accessible. And and so I, I I almost had a kind of like a beginner's innocence. I, I had no idea how difficult it was for a lot of people. I just thought we stay with the breath and the practice just unfolded. And then within probably I'd say a week or two, the side I began interviewing Tina and I together for the rest of the retreat. Even though we were different places, we'd go in and we'd hear each other's report and his advice and all that. And it kind of helped us in a way, I think our our relationship, we really bonded through that and also he speaks perfect English, but he had uh, the Burmese don't have they don't have sort of highs and lows in the speech, so it's almost like a monotone. So it was all, not always easy for us to understand what he said. And we'd leave the interview and we'd be comparing notes. What did you hear? And between the two of us, we'd figure out what advice he had given us or what his comment was. So it was really helpful in that regard too. And the practice just unfolded. Where, as I mentioned. As I mentioned, I had some past life experiences where I was struggling in one practice or another, 
And from the past life experience, I could feel, I, I, it was almost like I, I could get the fact that they had done this practice and this was a this was a returning, not a new experience. And then it just seemed to, I knew what to do. It was like, I just, I understood it in some way. Is that something you reported to the Sayadaw in your interviews or were your reports uh, strictly related to the result of the techniques in the meditation? You know, I, I think at some point I did tell him about having past life recall. And because that's part of his teaching map, he didn't find that to be too surprising. And um, he didn't encourage anything about it, but um, he kind of smiled as he would sometimes and just gave me a little you know, nod. So I didn't really spend a lot of time on it. And I also didn't, I didn't treat the past life experiences as being me. It was more mm -hmm. like it was an experience I had of another lifetime like I've had in this lifetime but it wasn't like I wanted to know everything about them or I needed to. I, I sort of had the experience I needed from that lifetime that helped me in this lifetime. So that, that's what I saw as the purpose of those arising. And Tina and yourself wrote a book coming out of that, Practicing the Janas, uh, about that period. So if people are interested in the specifics of the training that you went through, it's all laid out in that book, Practicing the Janas. A uh, really remarkable achievement Curious, one of the meditations that struck me as I read the book was the body part meditation, where one meditates on certain, well, body parts. I'll let you explain it. If I recall correctly, one of the effects or purposes of that meditation is to disidentify with the body or to produce a different sort of relationship to the body. And that puts me in mind a little bit of a practice uh, set out by Nagarjuna. One meditates on the body to uh, in a monastic context, produces sort of certain disgust towards the body. And certainly the the bits and pieces and the fluids and so on that one meditates on in the 32-part meditation are, let's say, they're pretty um, uh, in-your-face, if we want to put it that way. Sometimes I think a criticism that's leveled at, certainly I've heard it leveled at Nagarjuna, is it can create a kind of adversarial relationship with the body or a kind of discarding or disregarding of the body. That's a, that's a criticism I've right. heard. And I'm curious how that lands with your experience of those sorts of meditations. Yeah, that's a great question, Steve. And uh, it's, it's an amazing meditation in that you are, you know, with your concentration going to really examining these different 32 body parts. And a couple of things happen in doing that. One is that when you finish the meditation, you realize there's nothing else left. So you've seen everything in the body there is to see, and 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 there's no me. So you, you expect, or I expected to somehow come upon this little kernel somewhere within my structuring that was me. So, oh, okay, there I am. It's looks like an acorn or it's something. But, but of course, there wasn't anything physically there that was me. And so there's that. And, and so there is a disidentification, which I think is really helpful in that we understand we're not just the body, that this is how we're presenting in this lifetime, but we're, we're more than that. Uh, and, and one of the places that I struggled in the meditation is there is a place that you cultivate uh, a repulsion towards your body. And I had a lot of trouble with that. And part of what I found coming up was a kind of gratitude for the times that my body had sustained injury or had something happen 
but had protected me. I hadn't died or I hadn't gotten seriously hurt. So I had almost a kind of, uh, I, I had a kind of fondness, which is not quite the right word, an appreciative fondness for my body that to cultivate this repulsion seemed really discordant to me. And and I got to where I, I, I worked with it. And then I, Tina and I actually met and talked briefly on the retreat about this. I was sort of struggling. And, and she helped me put it into perspective of understanding that it's it's the attachment that we're really getting at. It's not really that we want, we feel disgusted by the body, but we're just trying to break the the excessive attachment we have to our physicality. And then it, it opened up for me at that point when I kind of got that that was, uh, it was, again, more disidentification than a rejection in a kind of disgusting way or a way of hatred. It was like that. Would that mean then that somebody perhaps who had a negative relationship, a kind of unhealthily aversive relationship to their body would attack the attachment or question or undermine the attachment through, I don't know, some sort of um, self-compassion practice towards the body parts? Would, would that would that be applicable or, or, or is that a misunderstanding? No, I, I think you're right. I, I, I think if someone is an aversive type and they're aversion toward the body, I think they, they would initially probably have a little easier time with the 32 body parts meditation and like the skeleton meditations. But I think there's a point where like I had to work with the... Um, you know, the attachment to my body, I would suspect that they would need to actually work on establishing greater contact and love and appreciation for the body before they could move on beyond the practice. So I think for all of us, we need to harmonize what our relationship is to our body in a way that's more open-handed. We don't want to reject it. We don't want to grab it. We want the open-hand approach. Great. And if for people who want more details on those practices, they are in the book, Practicing the Jhanas. Um, in our correspondence before we began this interview, you wrote about you're working on several books at the moment in, in different stages of publication. And one of them really leapt out at me. You write here, my next book this year will be the book I'm tentatively calling Stroke of Realization. This will delve into a stroke I had in late 2018 and the realizations that occurred during and after the stroke, as well as resting in the Vajra body during the stroke. The book will chronicle the cultivation of the Vajra body, the unborn quality of our consciousness, as well as the territory of first awakening to stable functioning self-realization. That is, I think, a whole uh, interview in itself. <laughs> what can you say about that? I'm curious about almost every word of that sentence, actually. Well, uh, first, I'll start by saying um, there are three books I'm working on, um, two of which I finished the manuscripts. The first one is a book on stress reduction for legal professionals, so lawyers, law students, and legal professionals. And that's more introducing meditation to lawyers. Um, I, I don't practice law anymore. Uh, after the stroke, I stopped practicing. But um, I did practice. I was a lawyer. I've been a lawyer for since 1987. So I, I both bring a, a lot of years of lawyering and a lot of years of meditating to the book. So that, that one's been to the editor, and I'm, I'm doing a re revision based upon a first edit. And I've written another, another book that right now I'm calling The Heart of Realization, which is a non-dual approach to the Brahma Viharas, the heart practices of Buddhism. And a lot of what I'm doing with that is presenting the teaching, but also talking about the psychological states, the emotions 
that can get triggered with each of the Brahma Viharas. So kind of naming those, what they are and how they function and, and that kind of business. And, and that one, again, I've got the first draft done, but that's, that'll go to editing in April. And then the third book's the one you're talking about that I'm tentatively calling A Stroke of Realization. And uh, I sort of borrowed the title. There was a book called The Stroke of Insight or My Stroke of Insight. There was a woman, a neuroscientist, who in her 30s had a pretty significant stroke. And she watched both the stroke in operation and then in recovery. And in reading that, I, I really... Um, it really spoke to me in that I had a stroke experience, um, as I mentioned, September 2018. And in my experience, just to mention briefly, in the stroke, I initially lost my visual field where everything became blurry, like I had um, you know, oil in my eyes. Just all of a sudden, everything became blurry and I had this massive headache and was really confused. Like I, did, I didn't understand anything. What were you doing at the time? What was the sort of lead up to the stroke? Sure. Um, uh, I was actually sitting on the couch um, and I was just about ready to get in the car and drive like three or four hours to the airport to fly off to a retreat. And um, all of a sudden my visual field just was gone. And and I wasn't frightened by it. I didn't have that kind of reaction. I was more curious about what was happening or let me say I had an attitude of curiosity and I found that very soon after it started, um, awareness went to a place that felt a little bit outside the body, but was still connected. So I, I take it that it was part of um, consciousness. And, and from this location, I, I observed the stroke, it took, which lasted about an hour or so. So for this hour, I was just observing watching this brain just short-circuiting and just in this massive confusion, didn't, didn't understand anything. And I was just curious about it. And part of what I saw in that, what I'm, what I'm calling the Vajra body, and I'm, I'm not originating this term, it's in Buddhism and in other spiritual traditions, was really that it was a body, it was a, uh, a quality, an entity that wasn't, it was a part of this lifetime in that I could feel all of the different awakenings and realizations that had happened in that awareness. And I could also feel an objectivity about it, meaning that it, that it was uh, mostly objective. And I could feel my flavor. Like I could feel a kind of a sweetness, um, an openness, kind of a nice quality, a pleasant quality that I, that I knew that was basically who I was at my core aside from any of the trappings of life. And, and so I was really clear, and I was also clear that if the stroke killed the body, that this the Vajra body was like an escape pod. It was going to leave. And I wasn't clear where it was going to go, if it was going to go to another lifetime or it was going to go back to, uh, let's say, the absolute and, and just stay in the absolute. I, I didn't know that. But, but I could see what was happening. And, and also, curiously, there weren't a lot of memories. Like, there weren't a lot of life memories there. I sort of had a bit of a feel for the quality of the lifetime. But it wasn't like I had, uh, you know, DVD selection of all my greatest hits or anything. It wasn't like that. It was very objective. And, and so it was really interesting at the time recognizing the Vajra body, which 
I have talked with, with some folks who have had some contact with that to where I feel pretty confident that's what, what happened. And, and then also after that, things shifted for me in uh, both knowing that there is this Vajra body and whether it was activated for the first time during the stroke, I don't know, but it was the first time that I resided in the Vajra body or awareness, better way to say it, awareness resided in the Vajra body. That was the first time I was residing there without really any contact with um, the normal me, the, the mind and body as I am today. So, so there was a kind of distancing at the same time. And, and that's really led, I, I've had a couple of head injuries also, car accident type things where I was, you know, um, had bad uh, uh, traumatic brain injury. And, and in each of those instances, as well as the stroke, there's a period of time where your normal sense of self and personality are suspended. There, you're not you're not yourself in the same way because there's been this significant disruption, and part of it for me was really beneficial in that in the times I wasn't myself, I really did a lot of practice, and I was really exploring and seeing what was there, what what wasn't there, who was I, and all these qualities, which led to a lot more experiences of realization of. You know, initially it's realization, the awakening of true nature. So what your your you know initial awakening, and then from there it becomes more about functionality and further realizations that happen. Like in the in the jhana, part of the beauty of the jhana path, the concentration path, is the upper jhanas, the the formless realms they're called, and each of those is part of um, the experience, the realization that. Uh, came later was returning to those ter those realms and really uh, having that experience in such a way that they became really an undivided part of this consciousness. So, so the Vajra body really had those qualities of space, of infinite space, of um, boundless consciousness, of no thingness, uh, which is profound emptiness, and then something that's non-conceptual, neither perception or non-perception, and and. Uh, for both Tina and I, I don't know if she shared this or not, I didn't listen to her interview before today, but um, we both also were able from the eighth jhana to uh, access the mystery directly. So we we were able to go beyond even the eighth jhana, which is, again, there's no con conceptualization, there's no perception, uh, there's neither perception nor non-perception. So it's kind of this strange way you perceive, but it's different than that. It's outside any thinking into the mystery directly. Um, and so that happened for both of us. So that was part of that kind of, excuse me, that journey after the stroke was having these realms open up again and experience them in a way that they became part of the Vajra body. They already were established there, but they came more, became more free functioning in some way. So that that's part of what I saw. And, and I, and I don't, I don't see that I that I am at an endpoint. I don't think there is an endpoint, but but I can feel that there is a stabilizing that's been happening in terms of functionality. That more and more of my functioning is functioning of being in through this body as this individual, um, and and it's less and less personality driven and and particular in that way. So that's part of what the book's going to explore is looking at 
both the, the territory leading up to First Awakening, why First Awakening is so important, because we're establishing uh, understanding that we're our true nature. Uh, well, first we see the true nature, and then later we realize we are the true nature. And then there starts to get to be functioning from that. And, and again, the in, incongruities is part of what, how we learn where we need to work. And as that gets liberated, there's deeper and more expansive experiences. So anyway, that, that one I've not written yet. So that's still in the drawing board stage. How is the recovery from the stroke? Uh, it's been good. I still have some, some limitations. I still can get overwhelmed uh, with too much information. Like yesterday, I was reading, going through one of the edited manuscripts, and I read for a couple hours. Normally, I could read about an hour a day, and I overdid it. So I had pain and nausea for the next 12 hours. So there's things like that I, I always have to monitor. And, and I get overstimulated. If I'm, in, you know, if I'm traveling in particular through busy airports and things, I can really get to where I get to where I need to quiet and I need to withdraw to uh, kind of settle down. It's just, it just, it's just overstimulating. You said some interesting words there about the Vajra body. You talked about activating the Vajra body. And in our correspondence, you use the word cultivating or the cultivation of the, of the Vajra body. Makes me think a little bit about how one might cultivate one's own body, you know, weight training or push-ups and so on. And I wonder what you mean by those words. And I'm also curious about, you said you'd talk to folks who had had contact with the Vajra body as well. And I'm wondering what sort of, what sort of people they are. Um, and what sort of things you discuss with them? Um, well, I, I think there is a certain way that there is a cultivation of the Vajra body. I don't know that it's really deliberate. I, I, I don't mean it in that way. But I, I think as we have experienced, particularly post-awakening experiences, as we're going deeper into the mystery and having experiences of recognition uh, because in all these experiences, there's subjective and objective experience. And the subjective is, I am that. So I, I am my true nature, for example. So we could see at first that that there's an objectivity. There is true nature. And then it's me. And that and that lands it in a way that's different. We can't, we can't seek it out. It has to reach a certain level of digestion, maturity, whatever word you want to use. And at some point it can land in a way that becomes part, an active part of your consciousness. And that's more what I'm meaning when it gets to the active part of your functioning, your consciousness, that I think is cultivating the Vajra body. And I, I'm not exactly clear at what point the Vajra body really um, becomes self-aware. Uh, for me, I could see in hindsight that there were times when I, I experienced it in a way of kind of a knowing that, that it was present, but it wasn't like it was in the stroke where I was inhabiting it. I was, I was in the Vajra body. Awareness was there for that hour in a way that was unmistakable. And I can't say anything else about it, or I can't say, I'm not saying it right. It, it, it was, it was a confirmation. I'll say it that way. So, so that's where it changed. And then I've spoken to folks who um, in talking with them, they've had the experience of the Vajra body of, of what that entails. And there is a certain quality of it that gives one a sense of ease and really a kind of freedom, knowing that what, what will happen upon death, that there is going to be uh, 
this consciousness that continues on. And, and we see this historically in Tibetan Buddhism, because I was always puzzled by Tibetan Buddhism. Buddhism talks about rebirth, where there's another birth, but it's not reincarnation. There isn't a soul that continues lifetime to lifetime. And, and yet the, the higher lamas, the Dalai Lama, Panchen Lama, Karmapa, they're all, they all are reincarnated. So it was always this question, how is there this discrepancy or this difference? And this is what it is. The Vajra body has been activated in them. So that consciousness goes in some respect intact from one lifetime to another lifetime. And, and like I had in the John experience, my theory is that as you come in contact with different practices, there's a reactivation of the memory of that practice or some quality that lets you have an easier time once again doing those practices and moving toward the realizations the practices may hold. Yeah, that's fascinating. Is the Vajra body uh, similar in any way to the astral body or the dreaming body, or is it a completely different thing? I, I don't know a lot about the astral body or the dream body. I've read, read a bit about it. Um, I would say that it's it's different in that I, my limited experience of the astral body would be it's more a matter of awareness moving in a certain direction or some part of awareness moving in a direction. And, um, and I would say this is different in that it feels complete and intact. And, and it contains, again, the essence of who you are, the, the, the most basic quality of who you are, like who you were when you were born, that kind of quality. And then also all the realizations. So it's an awake and aware consciousness. So I, I'd make a little distinction there. And, and someone who knows more about those states might have more information or could correct me on it. That's fascinating. I'm looking forward to, to reading that book, Stroke of Realization. It's working yes. title. Yeah, fantastic. Stephen, this has been really fascinating. Where can people reach you if they want to uh, work with you or contact you in any way? Well, right now, um, Tina and I are still sharing a website, awakeningdharma.com, and they can contact um, me or us through that. And at some point, I'll probably be developing another website, which will more focus specifically on the teaching that I'm developing. Uh, like I'm, I'm doing a retreat in July in Washington State at Cloud Mountain on uh, the non-dual approach to the Brahma Viharas, to the heart practices. So that'll be incorporating a lot of... Um, what I've what I've written in the new book and so it's going to be a little different teaching and at some point I think I'll be doing some teaching on the stroke of, of um, realization I have some ideas about offering some retreats and maybe a, a year or two long program for folks to do an exploration uh, of that territory Stephen Snyder thank you very much thanks so much Steve really nice being with you thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast for more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.